Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 33 on Howl's Moving Castle. And this is episode 7 of my animation season, following on from Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And it's a sister episode to episodes 8 and 9, which are Spirited Away and My Neighbour Totoro. Um... And and this episode and the episodes for Spirited Away and My Neighbour Totoro are in celebration of the first anniversary of the first episode of Verbal Diorama. And that came out today. If you're listening to this on the 16th of February, this the first episode came out on the 16th of February 2019. Um, and because I'm doing three episodes at once, essentially, and, you know, releasing three episodes at the same time, it, it's, it's been a challenge. Um, this episode is going to be fairly short. It's going to be fairly to the point-ish, as, as as much as I can be to the point. And it also isn't going to contain the usual kind of beginning and end blurbs, um, only because A, I feel like I don't really have the time, and B, I kind of feel like it's not needed, um, because I wanted to do these episodes um, to say thank you to you guys, the listeners. Um, I really appreciate you being here and listening to me go on about movies that I love. It's literally such a joy. Um, and How's Moving Castle, um, it it is admittedly seemingly less accomplished um, than the other movies that we're going to be talking about. Obviously, all of these movies are Studio Ghibli movies. Um, but this is the movie that really made me love the output of Studio Ghibli and it actually led me to re-watch My Neighbour Totoro and realise that I had actually seen it before when I was a child. I'm going to talk about that in the Totoro episode and it also led me to watch Spirited Away um, which I'm obviously going to be talking about as well but I completely adore Howl's Moving Castle. There's so much that I love about it. I think it's one of the most beautiful movies that uh, Miyazaki has ever done Um, and 
while all of the Ghibli movies that I'm going to be looking at all have female protagonists, um, Sophie, um, I feel like I can relate to her a lot, I guess, without any more to do or waffling. Um, I am just a simple hat maker in a European city, uh, besieged by war with a neighbouring country. But one day I meet a handsome wizard and find that he has a castle which moves. So here's Hell's Moving Castle. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, the director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. And quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. That's really me, isn't it? An enchanted moving castle. This is a magic house. And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, journey to amazing new worlds. Find me in the future! Aboard Howl's Moving Castle. So, synopsis for Howl's Moving Castle. Sophie leads an uneventful life at her late father's hat shop, but all that changes when she befriends Wizard Howl, who lives in a magical walking castle. However, the evil witch of the waste takes issue with their budding relationship and casts a spell on young Sophie, which ages her prematurely. Sophie, now a 90-year-old woman, leaves her home and finds Hal's castle and befriends the occupants. Markle, a young boy who can transform into an old man, and Calcifer, a fire demon powering the castle, as well as Turnip Head, who has a turnip for a head. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's so fun. Um... A couple of things that I want to make completely clear um, about how I'm going to cover these movies. So thing number one that you need to be aware of, as far as I'm concerned, you can call it Studio Ghibli or you can call it Studio Ghibli. I have alternated between the two in the past. I think Ghibli is kind of the main pronunciation. So that's what I'm going to go with for these episodes. But it doesn't matter if you call it Ghibli or Ghibli. And I'm going to talk about dubs and subs a little bit later um when i talk about the cast i'm only going to really talk about the main cast um and i'm going to give you the original cast member and the disney dub cast member um on all of these movies so cast wise um we have playing sophie hatter um for the original japanese version was chieko Baisho. And for the Disney dub, it was a dual role between Emily Mortimer and Jean Simmons. So Emily Mortimer played young Sophie and Jean Simmons played older Sophie. Um, as Howl, uh, Tayuka Kimura for the original recording and for the Disney dub was Christian Bale. As the Witch of the Waste, Akihiro Miwa and uh, Lauren Bacall. Um, as Markle, 
It was Ryunosuke Kamiki and Josh Hutchison for the dub. And Madam Suleiman was Haruka Kato for the Japanese version and Blythe Dana for the dub. So, as with all of these movies, it was written and directed by the legend Hayao Miyazaki. And for each episode, I'm going to go through a little bit of a blurb about him. It's going to be the same for each episode because I literally just copied and pasted it. But um, I feel like not everyone's going to listen to all of these episodes. You're only really going to listen to the one that you love the most or the one that you've seen. Um, So I'm, I'm fully expecting most people to listen to Spirited Away. So, Hayao Miyazaki, often called the Japanese Disney. Um, Honestly, there's no comparison. Um, Disney makes great movies and I love them, but they're very light and fluffy compared to what Miyazaki does. Um, He likes to talk about recurring themes and we'll come on to them in a little bit. But Miyazaki and by extension Studio Ghibli, they have never pulled their punches on serious topics and worldwide issues. Um, so Hayao Miyazaki was born in 1941. His interest in animation was sparked by the 1958 movie Panda and the Magic Serpent. He graduated in 1963 with degrees in political science and economics before starting work at Toei Animation as an animator. And at that point, he also started writing manga. He also worked for A-Pro, where he started working on Lupin the Third Part One. And he also had a spell at Nippon Animation before moving to Telecom Animation Film in 1979. His directorial debut was The Castle of Cagliostro, which is a Lupin III film. Um, He then worked on a film adaptation of manga series Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, where he enlisted musician Joe Hisaishi to compose the score. In 1985, Miyazaki, along with Iseo Takahata, Yasuyoshi Tokuma and Toshio Suzuki, co-founded Studio Ghibli, uh, named after the Libyan Arabic name for Hot Desert Wind. The first Studio Ghibli feature film was released in 1986, and that was Castle in the Sky or Laputa Castle in the Sky. I've talked before about animation being this all-encompassing art form um, and you should never call animation a genre because that's wrong. Um, And I've also talked a lot about animation not being just for children. Um, And while Ghibli's work is often very different in in genre and setting, all of Miyazaki's movies specifically tend to follow these similar themes and themes I will go into sort of for each individual episode. Um, As I mentioned, I listed the original Japanese voice actors as well as the Disney dub actors. And on the topic of dubs v subs... This was something that I talked about with Anita and Kira over on the Akira episode. Um, And my personal view is I don't care if you watch with subtitles. I don't care if you prefer the English dubbed versions. As far as I'm concerned, the best thing you can do is watch and enjoy these movies because they are works of art. Um, I have no judgment on anyone who prefers dubs. Um, I am very fond of the Disney dubs that these movies have. I think they are overall really good. Um, sometimes some things do get lost in translation. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes because it's Disney, sometimes it's a little bit different. They kind of Disneyfy it a little bit when you compare um, the subtitled versions to the dubs. Um, but as far as all these movies are concerned, I've enjoyed and loved both the subbed and dubbed versions. It's fine to like either. It's fine to like both as long as you watch these movies. Um, And Howl's Moving Castle specifically is probably my favourite of all of the Disney English dubs for 
all of these Ghibli movies. Um, this time it was um, helmed by Pixar's Pete Doctor, um, who obviously is famous for Up and Inside Out. Um, I think Christian Bale is perfect as Howl. Um, obviously, it's really interesting because Christian Bale is Welsh and the original uh, version of the book, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, was predominantly set in Wales, written by a Welsh writer. Um, and Christian Bale specifically, he saw Spirited Away and he rang them and he said, look, give me a part in any movie. I don't care what. I will just take whatever. And they gave him Howl. Um, and I think it's he's just really brilliant in this. Um, and then Jean Simmons as well. This was one of her final roles before her death in 2010. Uh, Lauren Bacall, obviously Jean Simmons, Lauren Bacall, both screen icons. Um, both of those ladies have been making movies since the 40s. Um, so, I mean, they bring such class and gravitas to this movie. Um, and Emily Mortimer as well as young Sophie. She has this lovely little level of innocence about her. And I love how the movie seamlessly switches between Emily Mortimer and Jean Simmons and back again as Sophie changes throughout the movie. And uh, Billy Crystal. Uh, and I get from reading certain articles and stuff online that his Calcifer is hardly a fan favourite, uh, but I love his Calcifer. Um, he is the literal beating heart of this movie. Um, and also a very, very young Josh Hutcherson. Um, and this was before Bridge to Terabithia and the Hunger Games franchise. Um, he's really great, actually, as Markle. I want to talk about the movie. I'm probably going to talk because I've got, I haven't got a great deal of notes to go through because I've purposely tried to keep it quite condensed. But um, let's talk about the production of Howl's Moving Castle and, and really what Howl's Moving Castle means to me specifically. Um, so the Japanese title for Howl's Moving Castle was Horo no Ogoko Shiro. Um, and this was never going to be a Miyazaki movie um, because quite famously, After Spirited Away became a massive hit in Japan and across the world. Studio Ghibli then announced they were going to produce two more films. Um, the first was The Cat Returns and the second was an adaptation of an existing novel uh, by Welsh writer Diana Wynne-Jones, Howl's Moving Castle. Miyazaki had read the novel um, and as we all know from other works, he loves castles um, and he was fascinated with the concept of a moving castle and how it might move. And while Miyazaki was the driving force behind the studio taking on the adaptation of the novel, uh, after Spirited Away came out, he essentially said, I'm going to retire. Um, so the studio wanted to continue with this idea that Miyazaki had, but they had to find a new director. Uh, and they ended up selecting Mamoru Hosada uh, to direct Howl's Moving Castle. And Hosada co-directed the film Digimon the Movie. And that attracted the eye of Ghibli head producer Toshio Suzuki. Uh, Ghibli announced Mamoru Hosada as the director. And he started working on his vision of the movie, and the movie was scheduled for a summer 2003 release. It became rather apparent, though, that the movie Hosada wanted to make was very different to the movie that Ghibli wanted him to make. Um, because although Hosada had been a longtime fan of Miyazaki since the castle of Cagliostro, he wanted to make his own movie. But the studio kind of felt that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, they wanted him to emulate Miyazaki. Uh, and essentially make the movie that Miyazaki would have made had he not retired. Um, and so 
rather inevitably, Hosada and Studio Ghibli parted ways and the movie was shelved. Um, and it was Miyazaki who basically came out of retirement because, as we'll establish, he never really retires. Um, and he came out of retirement to complete Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, and then the intention was to release it in summer 2004. Um, it's worth noting that Mamoru Hosada has gone on to become a very well-respected Japanese filmmaker in his own right. Um, so don't feel sad for him. He's done okay for himself. While in Howl's Moving Castle, the movie is hand-drawn, the images were actually scanned into a computer after they were drawn and painted. Um, although the use of digital technology was used to complete the film, the studio chose to manually retouch the digital images by hand. And that was to avoid the artificial feel of computer accuracy um and that's something that i touched on a little bit in the lego movie um and the lego movie is obviously 10 years ahead uh, when a computer can realistically portray flaws and inaccuracies um but the artists at studio ghibli still relied on the hand-drawn element to do this um, and that's really important as well because although these movies are just completely stunningly beautiful the fact that there are inaccuracies in the images it really makes it it endears you more to the film actually um, because if something is too perfect sometimes it can feel a little bit like uncanny valley ish um, and you kind of don't have that real emotional connection um, which as you'll come to establish I really do have a very deep emotional connection to Howl's Moving Castle um, so Diana Wynne-Jones, um, she discussed the making of the movie with Studio Ghibli. She did not have any involvement in the production at all. Um, she's gone on record saying that she enjoyed the movie, even though it doesn't quite follow the plot of the book or have the same characterizations. Um, as with most adaptations, the book is more descriptive um, and it has more time to grow its characters. And the characters are very different in the book. Um but Miyazaki loves inserting the certain themes into his movies and he wanted to make Howl's Moving Castle, he wanted the th it around the theme of war and specifically anti-war. Um, and he wanted that to be the reason that Howl continually leaves the castle um, because in the book he's he leaves the castle to be a womanizer, basically. And I don't think that that was something that Miyazaki really wanted to keep in his movie um, that was very much aimed at a family market. So I want to talk a little bit about Howl because he is fascinating. <laughs> He's got a very much of a David Bowie, Jareth from Labyrinth swag going on with this real kind of effervescent charm. And I think a lot of that comes from Christian Bale's performance um, specifically. We're introduced to Howl um, essentially saving Sophie from being sexually harassed uh, by a couple of soldiers and performing magic to make them leave. Um, but all we knew of him from before that was the girls in the hat shop claiming he eats young women's hearts. Howell is kind of this beautiful enigma. Um, he's pursued by literally everyone in the movie. He's pursued by the Witch of the Waste, uh, by the King, and by extension Madame Suleiman. And, and it's... And he's not pursued by Sophie at all. She really does not care a jot about who this magical wizard is. Um, but it's her interaction with Howl that really grates the Witch of the Waste um, because she was young and beautiful once and 
they had a bit of a thing and she wants Hal's heart um, and she will do anything to get it. Um, she becomes jealous of Sophie, um, who is young and beautiful, even though Sophie doesn't think she is, she is. Um, and beauty and youth um, is also a theme that we're going to come to. Um, the witch sort of enraged by Sophie's treatment uh, basically she's not willing to bow to the witch of the waste she ends up transforming her into an old woman going back to Howl you know he's a pacifist he and this is something that Miyazaki himself uh, identifies as Miyazaki disagreed so much with the war in Iraq that he refused to attend the Academy Awards um, and that was the year that Spirited Away won but Miyazaki was not there in Hell's Moving Castle, the war is so central to the movie that towards the end, people are having to flee the city before these airships arrive. Um, most, The most visceral image of war in the whole movie for me is there's a scene where Hal takes Sophie to a beautiful field full of flowers and it's his, it's his gift to her and it's such a lovely scene. And then it's, it's really disrupted by these airships sort of above that just sort of show that this war is coming um and someone has to do something to stop it um how specifically uh is requested to attend to the king uh to fight um and it's how basically explains that all the other wizards have done this he has to sign up as both of his alter egos so he's both the wizard pendragon and the wizard jenkins uh in different cities and something else that we come to realise is that the wizards who fight in the war are so changed by the fight that they essentially are monsters forever and they can never change back. And that's something that Howell himself talks about and Calcifer talks about his fear that Howell will never, ever be able to turn back human. Um, Howell doesn't want to risk his own humanity because he doesn't have that much of it left um, because he literally has no heart. Um, he kind of starts the movie as a kind of an atypical romantic hero, midway as this like cowardly vain man-child, and emerges at the end sort of finding this strength from Sophie's love for him. I have talked a little bit about Sophie, um, but Sophie is just a normal young woman. She feels very plain, especially against her mother and sister, who are kind of portrayed in the movie as very bubbly, blonde, beautiful, getting all the attention from all the men. Uh, but we don't really know a great deal of her family from the movie. Um, I think it's something that the book goes into more detail with. And I think the book gives her another sister as well. Um, but Sophie is just happy to work in her late father's hat shop. And all of that changes when she meets Howl. She's turned into an old woman. And it's her very fear of being ugly is kind of forced upon her um and it's really interesting actually for a movie like this um, because it's not often that you find any movie let alone animated where one of the main characters if not the main character because although the movie is named after howl arguably it's sophie who we go on this journey with that this is a movie that has an, an elderly woman as its lead um and in addition, an elderly woman who has a handsome young male love interest. The spell placed on Sophie is that she, she can't tell anyone about it. And But whenever she kind of acts bravely or speaks her mind, she slowly reverts back to becoming young. Um, it's a little bit like um, a Beauty and the Beast story with 
two beasts and i use that in inverted commas because sophie believes that she's ugly um and by being old she believes that hal would never be interested in her anyway so why would she not go and work for him because he only likes young women's hearts um and Howl literally transforms into a beast. Sophie is a really compelling character because she's so likeable. And even as an old woman, she becomes more powerful and more heroic. And this this woman literally stops the war, even if it is unintentional. Um, it's basically a story about it's okay to be beautiful, but it's better to be kind. Um, it's kind of unintentionally feminist in a way although I suppose you know it kind of is intentionally feminist too but it feels unintentionally feminist in that it's even though it's a classic love story Sophie doesn't rely on being saved by Hal it's it's actually she who saves him as well as this missing prince who turns out to be Turniphead um but it it seems to it it really likes to kind of switch its tropes around a little bit and although it is a little bit more conventional than the other stuff that Miyazaki has done i can't help but completely love it for for really what it is it's inevitably compared to other works like spirited away um and for me it's a bit like comparing apples to oranges there's always going to be a limitation when something is based off an existing work um and it's not just Miyazaki making the story up as he goes along as he famously did on Spirited Away um the source material is very rich and very detailed and any adaptation would have been quite tricky to do um and I kind of feel like Studio Ghibli made the best Howl's Moving Castle that they could have done it's just it's really not like anything else and I think that's mainly because it's an adaptation it doesn't have those it doesn't have time for those scenes of ma which is something that spirited away and my neighbor totoro both do incredibly well scenes of just where everything stops and everything is nothing and ma is emptiness um and because there's there's far too much going on in this movie for that to happen and it's a all the spectacle on screen is very typical of Miyazaki's visionary style. Um, I mentioned the field of flowers. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Howl's lavish quarters are, you know, shining and sparkling and, and bright and colourful. And, and the look of the castle itself as well, which is almost as human and living as it is mechanical. And I know that was something that Miyazaki was really interested in. As I said, how would this castle move? And it ended up being essentially a, a castle on on chicken's legs specifically, which is very interesting when you think about things like in Slavic folklore, um, the Baba Yaga's house has is apparently a house on chicken's legs. Um, and Howl's Moving Castle, the castle itself, feels very reminiscent of that. As with most of Miyazaki's work, there's... A lot of ambiguity uh, with heroes and villains. Um, the Witch of the Waste, specifically, who's indisputably a villain at the start, ends up losing all her power, including the powers she used to retain her youth and beauty. Um, and she essentially just becomes a confused old woman. Um, and not only is she a confused old woman, Sophie is kind enough to look after her. Um, 
And again, this kind of shows what a great character Sophie is, that she's willing to look past this frail old woman to the witch that she used to be. And the Witch of the Waste specifically, um, she's a confused old woman, but she's not confused enough to know that she still wants Hal's heart and she's the one who ends up finding it and finding out that it's actually Calcifer. Miyazaki also loves flight and um, it's something that Howl's Moving Castle reflects quite well is Miyazaki's love of flying and there's quite a lot of inventive design when it comes to flight and the airships that are used as well as when Howl actually does transform into a bird. Because Miyazaki used to love military aircraft so much as a child um, with the whole anti-war thing as well I think it's it's kind of a bit of a love-hate relationship in that you love these machines and what they can do but then what these machines are used for is something that you detest. There are plenty of similarities here to other works. Um, I think the main point of reference for similarity that I kind of have is with the movie Stardust um, and I have done an episode on Stardust. I think Stardust and Howl's Moving Castle are both very similar in the way they feel, just the way they invoke emotion and joy. Um, for me specifically, um, I could sit and watch Howl's Moving Castle till the rest of time. Um, I think that Joe Hisaishi's score um, obviously Joe Hisaishi has scored pretty m well he scored all of the ones I'm going to be talking about I think he scored pretty much most of uh, Studio Ghibli's uh, work but this score is the most beautiful work I think that Joe Hisaishi has ever done the main theme of Howl's Moving Castle is called Merry-Go-Round of Life it's incredibly memorable it takes you immediately to this place it feels very at home in a European city setting um, because although the movie tells us that it's not set in Japan, it feels like very European setting um, and it just immerses you in this beautiful waltz-like quality. Um, I completely adore this score so much that I have it on CD. I think it's the only movie score that I do own. I have loads of soundtracks to movies uh, on CD. Um, I think... This is the only score that I own. I'm pretty certain. Um, and Howl's Moving Castle, because it's my favourite Ghibli movie, I do own quite a few little things. Um, I have a limited edition framed still. Um, I have limited edition figurines. Um, I, I love this movie so much. I wish I could talk more about it uh, right now. As much as I would love to make all of these episodes an hour long, I don't think that I could do it uh, with the time limits that I currently have to get three episodes out. And that makes me feel so sad because I really do want to talk more about Hell's Moving Castle. Um, I find this movie completely spellbinding, uh, which is ironic considering pretty much everyone in this movie is under some sort of spell. Um, but I, I genuinely think this movie is magic. Um... I also want to quickly shout out that our friends over at For Your Reference, Katie and Oti, they are doing a Miyazaki season this month as well. They are covering five uh, Ghibli movies. Um, I'm only doing three because mine are all coming out in one day, but they are clever and considerably smarter than me and they're releasing them um, 
every, I think every three or four days, they're putting one out at the moment. Um, So obviously, if you want more Miyazaki and more Ghibli in your life, I know they're just focusing on Miyazaki, um, then hop over to For Your Reference and get your fill. Um, I also specifically mentioned them on the Spirited Away podcast because they helped me out with my research, uh, which was great. I can't do an obligatory Keanu reference because it, it would literally be impossible. So I've decided to change it and do a, if Keanu was in the live action adaptation of this movie, who would he be? And for Howl's Moving Castle, I think he'd be the perfect Howl. Uh, and I'd be the perfect Sophie. <laughs> I'm going to finish it here and I don't want to, but I'm going to have to, um, which is sad. But uh, <laughs> I'm... Hopefully I can come back um, and do some more on Ghibli. I know that when I said that I was going to be doing Studio Ghibli movies, some people were very disappointed that Princess Mononoke was not one of them. I'm similarly disappointed that I can't do Princess Mononoke, but I am absolutely determined to get Princess Mononoke on the schedule that is just such a wonderful movie. Um, it's just a shame that I haven't had the time to cover it. It's a shame that I haven't had more time to cover these, but that's just the way it is when you're trying to get three episodes out in one day. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Howl's Moving Castle. Um, the next episode, um, obviously, I'm treating these three Ghibli episodes essentially as one. Uh, when I talk about the next episode, I'm talking about the episode after these three that are coming out. Um, and it's the last episode of my animation season. So I'm going to finish it by going to Disney. Um, they are the biggest animation studio in the world. And I could go for one of their biggest hits like The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast, but I'm not. I could go for the first full length animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But I'm not, because I'm following the grand tradition of obscurity. And my Disney choice is a movie I've actually not seen. Um, and I kind of wanted to do that because I wanted to kind of go back to Titan AE because Titan AE, I'd never seen it before. I used it as the first episode of this podcast and it did great things. So I'm going to be actually taking a punt on Treasure Planet. For the next episode. I've never seen Treasure Planet. I've heard great things about Treasure Planet. Um, you know I love hand-drawn animation. It's obviously a mix of hand-drawn animation and CG. I also just wanted to f- end this episode and all of these episodes just by sort of saying to you, uh, dear listener, whether this is your first episode or your 30th, thank you. Thank you to my Patreon supporters. Simon, Sade, Hardiel, Claudia, Simon, Laurel and Derek. But seriously, if you're listening to this and you've listened to anything else or it doesn't matter, thank you so much for listening to me at some point for the past year. Um, And hopefully I'll see you all for the first episode of year two of Verbal Diorama and the final episode of this animation season for Treasure Planet. As I said, there's no end blurb today. Just a heartfelt thanks. And happy birthday, Verbal Diorama. Bye. Movie Chanel.